You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. I'm Carissa, and I make beautiful clothing for a living. Carissa McCaig is a fashion designer and the owner of Copious Fashions. Inspired by her love of books, music, film, and TV, Carissa is a successful businesswoman, a prolific creator, a conscientious environmentalist, and, as it just so happens, the person who made my wife's absolutely stunning wedding dress. Here's my chat with Carissa McCaig. Who are you and what do you make for a living? I'm Carissa McCaig and I'm the designer of Copious Fashions. And I make uh, women's wear, but have also started branching into more unisex pieces as well. How'd you get started into fashion? Um, I mean, I always was doing it. Um, my Growing up, I liked thrifting pieces and going to Sally Ann and stuff. But it wasn't until I was applying for universities that my mom was like, is this really what you want to do? I was going to go to take an English degree. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted. And so she brought me to Toronto and took me to the design school and was like, I think you'd be really good at this. I think this could be something for you. And I never looked back. She took me in February. I applied and I got in. Did your mom have a background in any of this stuff? Like, how did she know that this was something that, that you should do? My whole family, like, just because my grandparents are my grandparents' generation. My grandmother never throws anything away. She still has fabric from like the 1940s, I'm sure. <laughs> so she was always crocheting. My mom quilted. My mom made us clothes when we were kids. So I don't think she would call herself a designer, but all my family are extremely creative people. Um, so yes, I feel like they influenced me in that aspect. How did you develop? You said you started early and you'd always been kind of messing around with fabrics and stuff. Like how did you develop skills along the way? So like my mom would buy like buttermilk, that's not what they're called, butterwick, butterwick, I was called buttermilk, buttermilk patterns. And we'd go to like the local store, she'd let us pick up fabric and then she'd make us a top. So like I had the basic understanding of like you take a pattern and it has to be cut on a certain grain and there's notches. She made my prom dresses, she made my graduation dresses. So like I had an understanding of how to make fashion. I just didn't know how to make my own patterns from scratch. And my mom didn't really know how to do that. So, um, I honestly, I find this question always hard to ask just because it's not like at a young age, I was like, I want to be a designer. I literally didn't think it could be a job. And my mom was the one that was like, I know you'll figure out how to do this. And here's this school that will help you. And so, yeah, I really late in the decision process of when you should be deciding to go to school. I just, I don't know. I fell in love with Toronto. I fell in love with the city being raised in such a country area. Um, yeah, I just, in February that year, I was like, yeah, this is what I want. And then I never looked back. And, and so where did you go to school then? Uh, International Academy of Design and Technology. So it is now affiliated with York University. So I think it's called something different. Gosh, that's my alma mater. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think they'd take credit for me, but I. <laughs> so I love the school. It was private. If I had to change and do anything different, I'd, I'd do Ryerson. If I was a current person looking to go, I would do Ryerson. Why? What's Ryerson got going on that, that, that really attracts you? I think more just that like, so it was a really intense program because there's, you can take four terms within one year. So they are throwing a lot at you really quickly rather than Ryerson being two terms a year. So then it spreads it out. I did a two-year program. Ryerson's four years. Ryerson, you can specialize in lingerie, haute couture. You can take a video background. So like a lot of my interns came from Ryerson and what they were learning, I was like, yes, this is like amazing. So I think it's just that fashion has become a more prevalent career that Ryerson has expanded the actual program a lot more than other ones. So 
I just love, and also like you're only 18, four years is nice to have time to figure out your life. So I graduated when I was 19, actually. Oh, because yours was a two-year program as well. Yeah. So it was like, it was a really intense two years versus a, a more yeah. broad four-year. Yeah. And then I just started working in the fashion industry when I was 19, which is awesome, but also would have been nice just to be like two more years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a little bit more maturity. And yeah. A bit more yeah. time to develop your own self. Yes, bit. That, exactly. At 19, I didn't know what I was going to do. Oh my God. Me neither. I, I went to school for archaeology. I'm Oh. <laughs> I've never done a single thing to do with archaeology yes. in my entire life. Okay. Once you got out of your program, what you said you started right into the fashion industry. That, yeah. Is that rare or like, how did you get into it? So for graduation, you have to have 500 hours of um, work in the field. So um, I just did like multiple internships. I think I had four internships at one point. And how'd you land those? I not to brag, but I was a top student. So I, a lot of my teachers actually got me. So at one point, my draping teacher, um, who I was very close with, left teaching and worked at the Hudson Bay Company. And she hired me as an intern and then subsequently hired me as a freelance. So a lot of these teachers were working teachers or certainly had a real experience. They, they weren't just out of a book or. You know. Yes. And so when I graduated, I got a restaurant job and I worked nights at a restaurant, but then I did four freelance jobs. And so I would be with a stylist and then I would be at Hudson Bay Company or I'd be at PYA, which is a local uh, fashion industry and importer in Toronto. So I just worked like crazy for like three and a half years to try to save money and figure out what I wanted to do. And what did they have you doing? Um, with the stylist, it was a lot of shopping at H&M and taking tags off and then shooting it and then returning stuff to H&M. Um, she was, she was actually from my hometown. So that's how I got connected with her. Um, she was like very ahead of her time. Cause at the start, when I worked with her, we did a lot of buying at H&M. And then as she progressed, she realized how damaging fast fashion was and she expanded into shopping more local designers. So that's how it became like, I started to realize that there was actually a lot of local fashion in Toronto. PYA importers, I work specifically with the women's wear division, which is line knitwear. And it's really big now. When we when I started there, it was pretty small. And now they're at New York Fashion Week. So they've gotten really big. I would do sketches. I would do quality control. I would communicate with the um, offshore manufacturer. I literally would do anything. I They paid me for the day and they made me work for it. So <laughs> um, I got thrown a lot of different different things, which was awesome. I got to see how like an idea started from beginning to end. Like this is what we want to make. These are the obstacles we hit. This is how we fix it kind of thing. And Hudson Bay was more about trend forecasting. So they would look at what was going to be popular a year or two years down the line and we would create books for buyers within the company to say like you should be looking for leopard print in 2020 because it's going to be huge you should be so that our stores reflected what people would want how how would anybody know what they should be looking for in 2020 i mean when you say it's, it's, it's trend forecasting i've always been curious about this so wwd is like the big bible of all fashion um women's wear daily they basically decide they just someone high up just decides they decide and it always shifts like it is sometimes inspired by what's happening. So in the last couple of years, military and men dressing or women dressing like men have become popular again because we're all pushing back our sexual identities, our gender identities. Military was influ influenced by how cops are rising up in more military ways within the U.S. So like designers often are designed based on what's happening in the world. So that you can stem a lot of things from, but then also 
like leopard just hasn't been around in like five years. So it just pops back in every once in a while. See, for me, leopard has never le- left. My <laughs> it's always been there. Always a mainstay. <laughs> exactly. So like we would look to the WD, WWD website and like stores pay like thousands of dollars to be a part of that. That's like a huge resource for them. And we would just start being like, okay, well, this is going to be big. Here's how we can use it in our way. So. Does anybody ever just buck that trend completely and just decide, no, I'm going no leopard this year. I'm going zebra. Absolutely. And that's how fast fashion sort of happened was because like when you think about all the top designers, normally it would take two to three years for those styles to trickle down to people like me who couldn't afford to buy like a thousand dollar shirt. Um, and then when H&M and Forever 20, 21 started coming in and could watch the shows and turn around something within two or three weeks that's how fashion became more accessible more accessible and and very disposable so there's two different ways when you look back at h&m like i have a couple h&m pieces from the very beginning of when they started their stuff was actually made really well because it was made in china china is actually a better clothing manufacturer than anywhere else when people kind of say oh well it was made in china when in terms when it comes to clothing that's actually the best you can do other than made in your own country, like obviously Italy, amazing for tailoring, wool cashmere. Um, anytime you shop local, you want to know that that person's making it. But if you are shopping from somewhere bigger, made in China is the top that you're going to get. China has been manufacturing so long. Now they have workers' rights and environmental taxes. That has gone up in price. So now that's why they started offshooting to Korea, North, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, all those other places that have much lower standards for their workers. So now when you look at something from H&M, it's terribly made. Their cutting is horrible. They cut off grain so the things twist. And so you sort of see how it's not well made anymore. But those original pieces were actually pretty well made. It just, they have to do something to keep up with all the other fast fashion places that popped up where they used to sell a blazer for like $75, which is very reasonable. Now they do it for 35, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and as they say, you get what you pay for. Exactly, exactly. So as you went through these internships, what do you think was, was important about doing them? And, and what did you get out of them? I think like I got mentors from all of them, people that I still talk to, that I still bounce idea, business ideas off of. Um, The other thing that I got to see was how you actually are a fashion designer. PYA was a little bit different because everything was made in China. I didn't really see the products get made, but I did see from beginning of end how not all the ideas are going to work out. Not all fabrics are going to work out because they're too expensive and we'll never be able to recoup the money. I got to understand that like as much as a creative person, we're connected to things. We also have to know when to let it go. Like it just won't work. It will, it could end up bankrupting us if we just end up going forward with that. So yeah, I think the biggest part about it was learning the business side of fashion. Like they didn't teach me that in school at all. Ryerson does do that. So another pro for Ryerson. <laughs> yeah. See, that's an, that's an interesting thing. I think a lot of places uh, will teach you about how Photoshop works, but not how to actually run a photo business. Yes. And uh, I think a lot of folks are left wondering, even with all the wealth of information that's online at this point. Absolutely. I think there's like a big gap between like huge 
places. I was very lucky that I worked at medium places. Hudson Bay was probably the biggest company I worked for. But because I knew that teacher, I directly worked with someone who knew my name every day, which was rare. She didn't know everyone's name. (laughs) So I felt lucky that I worked at medium places where I literally could learn things where and they could afford to hire me. Whereas like I can't afford to hire someone. I always had interns when I was in Toronto, but it makes it harder to jump in and actually learn how someone small does it because oftentimes we can't afford to hire maybe more than one or two people. So it makes it hard to get a foot in the door. Well, and I I think to my beginnings in film and television, doing an internship or starting out as a PA basically meant working for free. Yes. Basically, it actually meant working for free. As we've seen, things are hopefully getting better. When you say internship, ideally, these are paid internships that are supposed to develop somebody to then join the company as a full junior employee yeah. uh, for a longer run. That doesn't always happen, but no. you know, it's certainly a lot, uh, a lot more inviting. Of course, that means that small companies, like you're saying, don't always get the opportunity because they don't have that cash flow necessarily. Yeah. So hopefully, there's more and more programs over time that allow smaller businesses to actually hire proper interns. Yes, agreed. Um, thinking about creativity, thinking about the ideas behind your stuff, where do they come from? Where do you find inspiration? Every, I get to ask this question all the time. It literally comes from everywhere for me. Like I have had some collections inspired by my childhood. I've had some collections inspired by a trip we've taken. Um, my brain doesn't really stop. Like it's always going. Um, I definitely found Toronto as a more inspirational place. It's kind of weird. It's catch 22. I was more inspired by the fashion in Toronto and daily would see women and be like, Oh my God, that's such a cool outfit. And like, try to be like, how could I make that copious? But I never shot in Toronto. All my photography took place back here because I was more inspired by nature. So it's kind of a catch 22. I'm back here and I shoot way more. Like I shoot my products way more in like natural elements. Um, but I'm still inspired. Like Instagram, I, I try to follow lots of local cool stylists to stay on top of what trends are happening. Um, fabrics inspire me. Sometimes it's a fabric. Yeah, I kind of just like every, it literally, my brain doesn't shut off. I always have a notebook and I'm always taking, jotting down ideas. Are you the kind of person who, uh, who finds a lot of fun in, in sort of mixing and matching stuff? Yes. The juxtaposition or finding yes. an odd combo that just really kind of works even though it probably shouldn't? To my detriment sometimes because sometimes clients will be like, I would love this if it was just black and white and not hot pink and lime green. <laughs> yes, I like to take things to like the furthest possible degree. So I would say probably the biggest thing, especially when you're selling, people also always ask me, who's your target market? I'm not really sure that's the thing anymore. Um, People always said when I was starting, I had to know exactly who I was selling to. And I kind of think that's bullshit. I literally sell to 18-year-olds and to 75-year-olds. And so that probably is the trickiest part with creativity is like finding a style and then being like, okay, who in my group is going to wear this? What fabric will I choose? Or if I choose this fabric, will a 75-year-old wear it? And if I choose this one, will it hear younger? It's just more about balancing that, like hem lengths and things like that. So I would say that's probably the biggest hindrance to my creativity is sometimes I have a wicked idea, but I'm just like, I don't know who will wear this in my group. And I'm not sure. So sometimes it just takes time. Well, do you find yourself editing? In other words, you know, yeah. you kind of called it bullshit and then you sort of said, but I do consider these things. And I, I'm, I'm curious, like, if you've got a great idea as an artist, as somebody who's a visual thinker, 
the person buying the clothes doesn't isn't always right, you know. Otherwise, Agreed. they just dress like I do, which is black shirts and jeans all the time. Customers still are king. Like the customer still does that. It's their money, and they know what they're shopping. And you do have to. So back in Ottawa, I tend to sell more conservative pieces. Uh, we have a lot of government workers here. They need. I didn't actually know that there was legit rules, like that they had to have sleeves. There has to be a certain hem length. I did not know that. And so when I started selling more in the Ottawa area, the people ordering from me would be like, this would be great. Could you just add sleeves? And I was like, what? <laughs> so demographic matter, your geographic matters. Um, I think probably the biggest thing to like loop back to that is more if you have a great idea and you know you want to do it a certain way, it's okay to wait. Instagram has given us this huge tool to just talk to our customers. So I have tried to get better at doing that and be like, this is what I want to make. These are the fabrics I want to use. But what do you guys think? It doesn't mean I always like the answer when they say no <laughs> or say do it more casual, but you do sometimes have to listen to them. Like not many women can wear, that's the other thing. Not many women can dress the way I dress. I work by myself in a creative space. I can wear whatever I want. People have real jobs that they have to look a certain way and dress a certain way. And so that is something you have to remember, especially if you are trying to make money at it. So tell me more about the Instagram stuff then. Will you put up an actual mock-up, a design, yeah. a shot and sort of say, here, th this is what I'm thinking? Because in the past, that would have been proprietary secret stuff that nobody would put out, let alone yes. get judged on. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a drawing. No, absolutely. And sometimes it's too like it's been a style that I've already sold, but I've never found a new fabric that I like to do the style again. And so sometimes I'll literally show a picture and be like, this was the dress you guys loved. You keep asking for it, but these are the three fabrics I have to work with this season. Which one do you like? And I'll say choose. And uh, I can kind of gauge off of the response. And then the other people I ask, and sorry to any customers listening, but their opinion is higher, are the shops that buy from me. If they know their customers better than the customers know themselves sometimes. So if my shop in Ottawa says, ooh, go Navy, fine going like they know what they can sell so I think probably the biggest thing is just developing a good rapport with the people that you sell to and trusting their judgment well and as you were saying earlier as a creative person you one of the things you should really know is when to let go when yes. to allow input when to actually take something valid from someone who's got real knowledge well and the one thing that I've realized is if it's a style that I really like but I would never wear black I would wear lime green I'll just make one for myself in lime green <laughs> like sometimes that's the part that I'm like just makes one for yourself the way you'd wear it but like these women have to go to work and can't wear lime green pants there so like yeah sometimes like you just have to let it go and recognize that not everyone's going to dress the way you want to dress and so with this wealth of ideas coming in, do you ever doubt what you're doing? I mean, you're getting a lot of input and you're asking for a lot of input. Do you ever hit a block? Do you ever kind of go, oh, shoot, I don't know what to do next? Um, probably when I was younger. Um, definitely the last three years have been more the best three years of my company. I've been more secure in what I'm doing. I'm more sure of what I'm doing. I don't know if that just comes with age or age in the industry um, or that my I have had a huge customer growth in the last three years so I have more people to talk to like when you're first starting out and you have like five people that buy from you and they're all your family it makes it hard to get an honest opinion of what you're doing um I forget I mean I'm sure there's a million people that say this but everyone always says like your first real sale is from someone who is not your family member because like they are cho choosing to buy what you've made and it means something to them. So yeah, I think I have had less doubt in the last three years. Now I pretty much know 
what is good and what is bad. And when I find it bad, it just goes in a pile and it might not be a bad idea. It just might be, I don't have the right fabric or I need to mull on it some more. So yeah, just more taking your time. Don't, not everything has to be done immediately. Which is an interesting thing to say in a, a world driven by something called Instagram. Yes. <laughs> but in local fashion, we go less and less by um, like the seasons. Um, bigger designers or fast fashion is literally putting new stuff in the stores every two or three weeks. We are not like that. Like I'm going to drop a new product next week just because I made them. I like them and I want to do it. So we're less like hindered by when you can and cannot do something. So tell me about the time when you did make your first big non-family sale. When you knew you made it. It was on Etsy. It was a dress that I made in school and I loved it and I thought it was beautiful, but I didn't know where to get started with this. So I listed all the stuff I made in school on Etsy and yeah, I like have it framed because I was like, oh my gosh, this, okay. And I forget, it shipped somewhere in the US. So I was like, all right, big deal. International, right? Yes, right away. So um, yeah, I think probably that was the first time that I was like, all right, I could probably do this. <laughs> And going back even further, actually, did you start your business right out of those internships? Like, did you, or did no. you continue to work for a while? I started making clothing right away for people in my circle group. Um, I had a boss who needed a suit, so I made a custom two custom suits for him. So I was still sewing. I made my sister's prom dress. So for about three years, I interned, and then I took a break. And then I got a job. I still wanted to sew, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I traveled for a bit in between too as well. And then I started working at Rent Rock Repeat, which was definitely a big turning point because it allowed me one to sew and make money at it. And then I started learning more how gowns and dresses should be made because I had to um, rip apart when they'd get damaged. I would rip them apart and fix them and I would get to look at the inside of them. So I actually learned how to make clothing from there. Your school kind of teaches you one way of doing it and you really have to just go out, find clothing, rip it apart and see how it's put together. So um, that was a big turning point for changing the quality of my work. And so when you did start your business, I'm assuming you were a one person operation, but yep. what does it look like nowadays? It's still a one person operation. People, I just posted the other day that like, look, this is how you make the dress. And I walked them through the points of it and I got so many people being like you make everything and so I think people forget that because some like other like, there's a couple Toronto ones where the girls the owners design everything but women uh, at local factories make them and so there is there's different stories for every company I grew up sewing and I love sewing so I still make all my products myself so how many products do you make then? I mean, you say you're going to roll something out. How many did you make? So there's different ways. So like for a collection, I will make sizes of everything. So each collection probably has seven to 10 styles and would have five to six sizes, depending on if I'm doing extra large or like smaller ones. So when I sell to my shops, they take two of every size because they have two shops. So there, it is. It's a lot of sewing. February and March is a lot of sewing. But the product dropping next week, it's more like I can whip them up really quickly and it's a test. So I'll drop it and when they sell, I'll make them. So everything's like a little bit different. Um, I have one sweater that's like a customized, like they get to choose the names that are embroidered on them. So that's done as it as they're sold. Would you ever consider going the other route and actually having somebody make them for you once you've designed? I have done that in the past. There's a lot of different ways to do it. It's very expensive. And like rightfully so, because they are local, they are paying full wage. 
I've had one bad experience where I got everything back and it just wasn't sewn properly. So I basically had to rip everything apart and start from scratch again. So it was a lot of just time wasted. Um, I've had a woman that is great at doing it. It's just very expensive. And so I would have to up all my prices easily by 50 to 70 to $80 on some pieces. So I think when you're younger, you don't charge what you should. (laughs) I should have been charging more right from the beginning. And it's only been in the last two years, I've upped my prices and started paying myself better. (laughs) So I don't know, I think where I live, I have less option now, not being in Toronto. That's not an excuse because other people do it. I just, I like sewing my pieces. I like the quality that I get. I like having the control of knowing that it's made well. So yeah, at least for right now, I'm sticking with it, but we'll see. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there are painters who don't paint their own painting. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which I think would surprise a hell of a lot of people. I, yeah. I, I think a lot more people are surprised when you hear that uh, someone who's making dresses from multiple outlets is actually doing all the sewing themselves. That's it's almost the reverse is surprising. Yeah. And it makes and it makes sense to you. I mean Yeah. I mean at the beginning it was more a cost thing for sure. Like I could pay myself nothing. <laughs> Why do you think so many people at the beginning, whether they're a photographer or a designer, you hear this time and again that you undercharge in the beginning. I know. People don't even know what to charge in the beginning. I know people who are who are pros in a, in a slew of different areas, and they still don't know what to charge and how to value themselves. Why do you think that is, and, and, and how have you figured that out for yourself? I think at the beginning, like, I was serving. I was working a night job that, like, realistically was the most ideal situation. But you hate it. You resent it because it's taking you away from what you love. So, like, I mean, I only worked 5 to 10. I would easily clear, like, $1,500 a week from there. That's amazing. That's a great job. But you end up resenting it. And so you literally charge little amounts just to get to work at some of the things that you love. (laughs) And so, I mean, that's not a proper way. And I also think at the beginning, I undervalued myself because I felt like I wasn't good at it. It is something that comes with age when you, again, it's not necessarily your age, it's age in the industry. Um, when I'm like, no, I know what I'm doing. And so like often now, like I get quoted a lot for bridesmaids dresses, which I don't typically love making because people have a view that they should be $200, but they want like a full ball gown. (laughs) And so, um, I just often will be like $800 knowing they'll say no, because I don't want to do it. But if they say yes, at least I'm being paid what I'm worth. So I don't know. I think that's what it is. So at some point you get busy enough where you reach a point where you're like, no, I'm worth more than this. So I think that's what it is. I, I think the other thing too, is when I was in school, the way they taught us how to price our stuff, I would have to sell something for like $300 to make it me recoup everything. Nobody can afford that. And also when I was really starting out, we were coming off of a recession. So I mean, that stuff matters. Like people not having money matters. So yeah, generally people with no money don't buy things. Exactly. So yeah, economic fact. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that was a big factor of it. But I just figure I tell all my interns price what you know, it's worth. So I try to just pass that on and figure I'll help the next generation that way. But people told me that and I didn't do anything about it. So (laughs) you said something really interesting in that you kept saying getting paid what you're worth not what the, the piece is worth. Yeah. And so I, I think this is just as applicable in um, in freelancing situations, service situations as well. Uh, if you're commissioned to make something for somebody, you got to get paid, right? You know, I always said that it's, you're not paying for the thing that I'm doing right now. You're paying for me to make the next thing. 
Yeah. And I've heard other people say you're, you're actually paying for the 20 years of experience that allowed me to do this. Yeah. You know, in, absolutely. In, in two days for you. Yeah. And those are really valid points. So, yes, in the early goings of, of a career, chances are you shouldn't command top dollar. Of course, you don't have a name and a pedigree and things like that. But that doesn't mean you should do it for under cost. That doesn't yes. mean you should do it for free. Absolutely. Uh, you kind of wind up eroding a lot of the, well, the in industry, really. Exactly. The of it. Exactly. Because I have a friend, she shoots all my photography, but her main gig is wedding photography. And she says that that is a huge problem in the wedding industry right now. And I don't know if it's because, like, I have a Canon. I shoot about 20% of the pictures that go on my Instagram. In no way do I call myself a photographer. I get really good at capturing perfect lighting at magic hour <laughs> where she can shoot at any time of the day and make it perfect and she says that's a huge problem that like lightroom and all these editing things you can throw a shitty picture in there and tweak it enough to make a go of it and then you can charge a thousand dollars to shoot a wedding where she's like that is ridiculous <laughs> and so i think the big thing is is there's always people that will know that and unfortunately there's always people that will not know that and they're the ones that spend a thousand and then there's other people that will spend more for what she does and for those people that that want to spend the thousand i guess that's the value that they're looking for and exactly okay. exactly you, they aren't the same thing yes, i mean if exactly. you take a look at the pictures they're simply not the same caliber yeah. if you're okay with something lower caliber sure yeah you know that that's your decision as, as the as the buyer kind of thing but yeah so as someone who's worked in in video and in film for years who literally started in film you know it, it, it's been tough to see the erosion of quality of, of mm -hmm. visual storytelling Yes. There's new storytelling that's come about, but, uh, you know, cinematic quality visuals are now more of a really nice to have if you've got the dough. And a lot of people don't. And for a lot of things, it's not necessary. Well, and I think the other thing, too, because it's not, like you said, high quality all the time, a lot of times, like even I feel very lucky that I have my cousin worked in at Deluxe in Toronto for years. So I feel like if I ever need to go to him, I understand what to do. So I have a very good reference on what good video looks like. And with same with Kaya, my photographer, like I can go to her when I have. But if you don't have that and you literally are going on like trying to just find a videographer, it can be hard sometimes. It is weird how you can look at something and be like, yeah, I think that's good. But then afterwards when you see something good and you're like, oh, not good. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to A-B stuff. That's it's hard. True. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because there's just so much of it out there. So what's the toughest thing you run into running your business? Money. <laughs> just like <laughs> having it. Having too much of it. <laughs> it just flows in the door all the time. I, get rid think, of it. I think the hardest thing is budgeting because I wasn't a business person. I was creative at the start of my company. I definitely made decisions on fabric that I was like, okay, that's that's stupid. You were never going to be able to get that money back because those customers can't afford that. So I think probably, uh, yeah, just I was creative, not business. And I've had to learn to be business. How have you found that? Um, I I'm better at it now and make clearer decisions based on numbers, not just like, oh, this is a pretty fabric. So I feel more like when I move forward, again, like you said, I feel more confident when I move forward with the thing because I literally have it broken down. Okay, that costs this much per yard, this how many hours. And so I know this is what money I can make from it. Whereas at the beginning, I was just very like, here's this thing and here's how much I'll charge. And that's ridiculous. So yeah. <laughs> Did you just mostly do this by trial and error? You figured yes. out the business side? Oh, really? So did you, yeah. did you have any, any mentors or, or any resources, like books or anything that you really liked? 
I didn't. And I honestly do have my father runs his own company. My grandfather runs his own company. So I did go to them for advice, but I also didn't always listen. I would often come back to the fact that, well, I'm a creative person. They run different, like they both are more business selling a physical object. So it's easy to say this costs 50 cents. I sell it for a buck 50, whatever. Right. I was more like, you don't understand. It's a creative. And so over time, I I was like, no, you were right. So no, I have very business minded people in my family. And also probably doing the one of a kind show was the other huge jump. Like literally Adrian from OKOK OK OK sent me a spreadsheet that I still use today that she's like, use this to figure out how to charge money for your stuff. Because <laughs> when she would look at my prices, she's like, how, what? And she was like, how do you live? And I was like, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> and she's Macaroni. Like, yeah. And she was, and so she was like, no, you have to charge more. You are. And so doing the one of kind show and being surrounded by people doing exactly what I was trying to do helped a lot. I've heard this time and again that, that the, the markets are really important, not just for getting in front of your customers and selling stuff, but for making relationships and, and, and learning stuff from the other sellers, Huge. from the other makers. Yeah, 100%. Um, and yeah, some people I would think might think there's a competition. There really isn't. Um, Adrian and I sell to similar people, but we also have very different clientele in an aspect. Um, and then another one is Heather from Dottie, who is a local woman. Um, and same, she has been in the fashion industry for like 35 years. So she like sat down with me and was like, this product has to cost more. There's no way you're making money. So yeah, they were never trying to like not help me. Run you out of town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were 100% supportive. And I like all, all the people are like that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they're so helpful? Because I think they recognize that we need more of us. Like there has to be more of us because especially in fashion, our fashion district is so small. It's gotten better over the years, but it was so small when Heather started there. And when Adrian started there, she's like, there'd be like five of us. That's not enough fashion to keep someone's attention at that show. You need more and you need more so that the mom can shop here and the daughter can shop here. Not so like that one's completely bored. And the more of us there is, then we get better fabric selections because the local fabric supplier is getting, now we're going to get better contract prices because there's more work for us. Like it just all helps the industry and we can control the supply chain when there's more of us, we can control like where a product is made, how much it's going to cost. And, and so, yeah. Do you guys ever function as a unit and do you ever like make, you know, large scale orders of certain fabrics that way or, or, or reach out for distribution as a collective, as a group? Does I know some people do. Um, that is a little harder because you have to really have the same fabric and like work. Cause if you are going to do a bulk order, it's like 10,000 yards. So you really got to be committed, but there is a couple women that um, do more like loungewear and they buy just straight white, hundred percent cotton. Um, and they can invest in like 60,000 yards together and ship it over and split the cost. And because they're ordering is such a huge quantity, they get way, way better. And then it'll last them for years. So as long as you're working in the same product like line, and then the one girl tie dies and the other girl completely dies. So they're separate. Like they aren't competing. What about the promotion side of things? How do you get known for being a designer? I mean, early goings must be impossible. Um, yeah, I have to say like, cause when I first started, I just did like shows. Like I would do a show at my, the restaurant that I worked at. They'd let me set up like a clothing rack and like meet <laughs> the customers in a different way. So like when I think about that, honestly, what helped was Instagram. I know maybe some people won't say that, but I, 
instantly have like 5,000 people and it's growing every day that I can talk to, that I can sell to, that I can drive towards my website. Um, I think when this all hit, like when COVID hit, I felt the worst for people that had prepped for one of a kind and had no customer base to sell to. So when one of a kind got canceled, I just was like, here's my collection. And I had huge sales because all those women would have shopped and they are right there. But if you have no one to gear your stuff towards, you can't compete. You can't get people to your website. You have to drive that traffic. So for me, Instagram, my newsletter, my blog, that's how I connect with my people every day. And have you always been pushing things out from, from an e-commerce perspective as a major primary sort of source of getting out there? Or is it always sort of percolating in the background, a nice to have that's always going, but... No, I pretty much had it from the beginning. So I started on Etsy, which is a much more um, cost efficient way to start. Um, I, it's very cheap to and you really only get charged when you actually sell a product. So you don't have to upfront put money out. Um, and but I think pretty quickly, like tw by 2016, I had my own website, it was very rudimentary. And I've since changed it over a couple times and updated it. But no, nowadays you pretty much have to have your own website and also there isn't much excuse not to have one because it's so easy like i built my website and i'm no way a tech person and you generate a lot of sales through that yeah website. oh yeah like it, direct to you yeah exactly i was speaking with another designer who uh, made an interesting point which was that if you buy direct from the designer you're certainly helping the designer out a hell of a lot more because of the markups and because the percentage is taken by the the stockist and yet being in different stores is a great thing to have on your resume as well. Yeah. So it's kind of a catch 22. You, I don't wholesale a lot because I don't have prices to wholesale. So I wholesale one major product of mine, which are my heart sweaters. They're geared towards wholesaling. It's really quick for me to make. The cost is perfect for them. Sizing is really easy. It works for both of us. My made from scratch pieces, I only wholesale to one store. And it is only because I have such a close relationship with them that they don't overbuy, they don't overtake, and then I get a bunch of stuff back. They pretty much only take what they know they can sell. Um, so I do take a bit of a hit money-wise, but then they carry some of my best-selling pieces that like, I get. It, it evens out, but yes, buying direct from my website is the most efficient way to support me <laughs> and make me have a living. So it's the way where I make the most of the money. For sure. When I was in bands 30 years ago, no, is it 30? Let's go 20 years ago. <laughs> when I was in bands 20 years ago, we used to sell you know CDs out of the back of the, yeah. of the van after shows. Like, yeah. That's how you made it. I mean, obviously, we could put them on consignment in stores and you could buy them there and certainly we'd get less. And so I guess that's never really changed. Yeah, no, it's 50%. So like if something is selling for $100, they take 50, I take 50. So when customers really think about that now during COVID, I actually use that as a marketing strategy because I was like, if you want to support two people right now, buy from them because now you're going to support both of us. So there's pros and cons. I love the women that I sell with. They are unbelievably helpful. Like I said, they're people I trust that I bring them a collection and they say, you just make this one inch longer on a hem, we'll sell it like crazy. So I have that trusted knowledge. So that helps a lot. So how do you make all this work? You're designing everything. You're making everything literally. I've got to assume somebody is, is there to help you. No. Nope. No, nobody. Just no, you. Just me. <laughs> so, I, so when do you sleep? Like, how does this work? 
I mean, I have gotten a lot better when I worked in Toronto and I like would work another job. And even when I quit that job, I didn't sleep at all. I rarely, I just pretty much worked. My boyfriend would cut fabric for me sometimes, <laughs> but now that I, I like getting a separate studio space and home space has helped immensely. I have like Monday to Friday, eight to four, I'm in the studio. Obviously when I'm gearing up towards a show, that's different. I will work insane hours to get ready for like a one of a kind show. There's just nothing you can do about it. Even people that have their other, their products made somewhere else, they'll have to do their price tags. There's still things they have to do. So that's just the life of a maker. I think the one thing is I just love it. I love running my website. I love writing blog posts. I love connecting with my clients. I love sewing. So it rarely feels like work. And I think the other thing that works for me is we don't have kids. <laughs> so my time is my time. And my boyfriend is an artist as well. So we often come home, eat dinner, and he goes to work and I go to work. Like, obviously, we make time for each other, but we also genuinely love creating art. So yeah, it's, it's tough when, you're, uh, when your partner is a civilian. Exactly. Not one yeah. of us crazy insane people who yeah. has to some reason keep making stuff exactly. whether anybody asks us to or not exactly yeah what sort of advice would you give to somebody who's interested in getting into fashion and design having their own studio and shop just like start because you have to create i read this somewhere and for the life of me i wish i could remember who said it because i want to like up on my wall somewhere but my friend when i was struggling and really couldn't figure out if i was good at this or if i should keep going she sent me this whole video and it was how it was an artist's life. And it was like, you have to create so much garbage and recognize that it's garbage and let it go to get to something good and to get to a place where you can trust yourself. So honestly, I would just say start because like the first group of things that you're going to make isn't going to be successful. You might find one gem in there that you can keep tinkering with, but you just have to start. Just start and make and make and make and make and make and keep going until you get to that sweet spot and then you're good. It seems a little counterintuitive because generally speaking, I think a lot of people expect that you know that you only have one chance to make a first impression. With that advice, I wouldn't recommend showing everyone these designs. <laughs> I made a lot of stuff and I tried it on friends and I tried it on my family and I would be like, well, why does this not work? Like why? And so, cause that's the other thing, especially with clothing, people have to live in it. They have to feel comfortable in it. If you have a skirt that rides up funny, it's awkward. You're not going to want to wear it. So yeah, so for sure, for the first little bit, like make and make and make and get people's opinions that you trust that will be honest with you. Because honesty, I think people think that they're going to hurt you or something. And sometimes it does. Don't get me wrong. There's sometimes where I'm like, oh, this idea was my best idea and you just killed it. But you get over it because as an artist, you have another idea and you like move on from that one. So you just need people that you can trust to tell you the truth and just make stuff. I think the other thing too is when I started, I thought I had to do like 20 pieces in every collection to compete no like make five amazing things and try to sell them and then add another one to it and then add another one to it so where can people find a little bit more about you uh so copiousfashions.com is my website you can pretty much find everything there but if you want to see me directly it's uh at copiousfashions on instagram i'm like on there every day talking and showing my studio off so <laughs> <laughs> well thanks so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living no worries thank you subscribe to making a living show at apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts Follow along at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please share the show with someone you know. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.